Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back. Giancarlo, what is our show lineup for today? Amy, we have oral argument updates, Justice Barrett's first questions at oral argument. We have an interview with Justice Barrett's former law student, Laura Walk, and we have election law trivia. Hey, GC, has anything significant or, I don't know, of national importance been happening this week? I, I just... I can't help but feeling like we're missing an update on something that, I don't know, might have potential SCOTUS implications. Uh, You know, I think this is a good time to take some advice from Sergeant Schultz. I hear nothing. I see nothing. (laughs) But can't can't think of anything at all. (laughs) No, we've got We've got a whole bucket load of election litigation. Oh, the election. That thing. Yes, there is certainly going to be a lot of election litigation. There will probably be many rapidly evolving changes and updates over the course of the next couple of weeks. So today we're just going to highlight just a couple high-profile challenges, uh, but we also recommend that interested listeners familiarize themselves with SCOTUS Blog's election litigation tracker on their website. Uh, That will be very helpful for those of you who want to keep track of the fast-paced changes. The most prominent cases to keep an eye on include Pennsylvania Democratic Party v. Bookvar, challenging the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's requirement that the state, contrary to the clear text of the statute, count mail-in ballots received up to three days after Election Day, as long as those ballots are not clearly postmarked after November 3rd. If you recall, this was the one that a 4-4 court declined to review before the election, with Justice Roberts siding with the liberal wing. At the time of our recording, it's still quite possible that Pennsylvania's electoral votes will be decisive in the presidential election. So if that ends up being the case, expect this challenge absolutely to make its way back before the court, this time with a ninth justice. There are also quite a few similar challenges from both parties to absentee and mail-in ballot deadlines and requirements in, in a number of different states, including Minnesota, Michigan, and Georgia, But it looks like right now that Pennsylvania may be the one of most national importance. Amy, I also want to highlight two cases out of Texas. One argues that 127,000 early votes cast in drive-through voting, which I didn't know was a thing, should be invalidated as violations of state election laws. And another arguing that a state law generally prohibiting vote by mail for voters under the age of 65 violates the 26th Amendment and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. As for dealing directly with the presidential vote in certain states, as of the time of our recording, uh, there really doesn't seem to be a clear answer about how all of that will play out or on what timeline. What we can say is this, if the election ends up coming down to a close call in Pennsylvania, the most anxious man in America will not be either of the candidates, but probably Chief Justice John Roberts. Absolutely. Uh, That is going to be a, I mean, you want to talk about Bush v. Gore. This will be hanging chads all over again. Well, we also had oral arguments uh, and some unsigned opinions this week. 
on Monday in particular, we had two per curiam opinions in which the court granted, vacated, and remanded cases back to the Fifth Circuit. Justice Barrett did not take part in the consideration of either case. First, we had McKesson v. Doe, in which the Fifth Circuit reversed a district court's dismissal of a lawsuit by a police officer severely injured in a policing reform protest against the organizer of that protest on the theory that he negligently staged that protest in a manner that caused the officer to be assaulted. The court determined that the Fifth Circuit should have first sought guidance on potentially controlling Louisiana law from the Louisiana Supreme Court. Justice Thomas dissented, but without authoring an opinion. The second per curiam opinion was in Taylor v. Riojas. This was a qualified immunity case in which the Fifth Circuit held that prison officials lacked fair warning that the petitioner's conditions were unconstitutional. Why? Because the law wasn't clearly established that prisoners couldn't be housed in cells teeming with human waste for, and I quote, only six days. The court remanded that case back to the Fifth Circuit, reasoning that no reasonable correctional officer could have concluded that it was constitutionally permissible to hold the petitioner in these conditions for that period of time, and also that the lower court provided no evidence that these conditions were either compelled or necessary. Justice Alito concurred in that judgment, but would not have granted review in the case to begin with. Justice Thomas once again dissented without authoring an opinion. On to oral arguments this week. The first one was United States Fish and Wildlife Service versus Sierra Club. So this is a Freedom of Information Act case testing the limits of what uh, FOIA calls the deliberative process privilege. That privilege allows the government to refuse to turn over certain FOIA materials if they're part of the agency's decision-making process. The requirement is that they are pre-decisional and deliberative. So in this case, the Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Services consulted with the EPA uh, to examine whether a proposed regulation would harm aquatic life. In the course of that consultation, the services issued biological opinions that led the EPA to revise its proposed rule, issue a new one, and after that, the services issued new biological opinions. So the plaintiff in this case wanted the earlier biological opinions, but the EPA said those are pre-decisional and deliberative because they didn't end up in a final rule. The question in this case is, so does the deliberative process privilege allow the EPA to withhold those opinions? At the heart of the case is the question, when does a document prepared in interagency consultation become final? If you draw the line too early, agencies don't have the freedom to deliberate candidly. If you draw it too late, you decrease transparency. So the justices wrestled with other practical considerations too, such as what's the effect of an agency labeling an opinion as a draft document, where absent such a designation, it might actually be a final one. The outcome, whatever it is, and I'm not going to try to read the tea leaves into this one, will have two major components. The answer in this particular case, but more importantly, the standard going forward, whether it's going to be a balancing test or a bright line. Now, this might not be the most glamorous case, but it has the distinction of being Justice Barrett's first oral argument. The court also heard oral arguments in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. This is the First Amendment Catholic foster care case where the Philadelphia City Council passed a resolution that effectively instructed the Department of Health and Human Services to stop referring foster care cases to Catholic social services. Why? Because of the Catholic agency's longstanding position that it would decline to certify unmarried and same-sex couples as prospective foster parents. 
if you recall the facts of this case, no same-sex couple had ever come to CSS, and CSS's policy would have been to refer any such couples to one of the many other foster care agencies that would have gladly helped them. The justices in oral argument uh, brought up some clear concerns with balancing competing rights and pressed the government, the, the city of Philadelphia in particular, why it couldn't create a win-win situation where religious beliefs are accommodated while same-sex couples are also afforded the opportunity uh, to uh, become foster care parents through a variety of other agencies. Several justices uh, tried to draw out parallels and distinctions between accommodating CSS's belief with respect to same-sex couples and accommodating a hypothetical religious belief about interracial marriage. A lot of questions also focused on the meaning of CSS's contractual relationship with the city. As an independent contractor in a field now completely run by the government, are they more like the employees in Smith or are they more like licensees in a regulated industry? Uh, this then, of course, brought up some questions about the workability of Smith itself. Finally, we saw uh, quite a bit of focus on the fact that the city provides exemptions to other anti-discrimination laws for this program. Uh, for example, it allows agencies to take a prospective foster care parent's disability into account, and that would otherwise be against anti-discrimination laws. But it has refused to make exemptions for CSS with respect to same-sex marriage and its religious belief. So does that work against the state's argument of a compelling interest? Does it render the law invalid under Smith because it's not neutral or generally applicable? Um, so these were some of the, the questions that the justices tried to wrestle with. Unlike John Carlo, I will try to read the tea leaves on this one. Uh, I think you probably have a six, possibly seven justice majority looking to protect or at least accommodate CSS's religious beliefs. I, I don't think, however you're going to see a majority of, of five justices who really want to get to the, the underlying issues of Smith itself. But don't hold me to that. Last up in our oral argument coverage, we have Jones versus Mississippi. And the issue is whether the Eighth Amendment requires a judge at sentencing to make a finding that a juvenile is permanently incorrigible before imposing a sentence of life without parole. In this case, the defendant was 15 when he stabbed his grandfather to death. And after a trip up to the Mississippi Supreme Court and back, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Now, the sentencing court in that case considered his youth and balanced a variety of factors. But what it didn't do is explicitly make the determination that he was irredeemable. So Jones argued that the court had to do that. But Mississippi countered that the only thing that some previous Supreme Court precedents have required is that the court consider age-related mitigating factors, which the sentencing court did. So a number of the justices, including the chief and Sotomayor, asked, well, under Jones's standard, didn't the lower court do enough already? Didn't it already consider a bunch of these factors that he says are relevant? Justice Alito seemed to side with Mississippi's narrow view and worried that the court's Eighth Amendment jurisprudence had strayed too far from the text. And then you had a trifecta of interesting arguments from Justices Gorsuch, Barrett, and Breyer, all asking essentially whether the Supreme Court's relevant precedents here, that's Montgomery and Miller, created a new substantive right. And if so, uh, what are the implications of that? And they all approached the implications from three different perspectives. Well, that wraps up our summary of what happened at the court this week. 
For this week's interview, I sat down with Laura Wolk, a blind attorney who recently came to the public spotlight when she testified before Congress on behalf of her former law professor, Amy Coney Barrett. After graduating summa cum laude from Notre Dame Law School, Laura made her way through an impressive succession of clerkships, clerking for Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the DC Circuit, Judge Thomas Hardiman on the Third Circuit, and finally, the Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court during the 2019 term. This made Laura the first blind Supreme Court law clerk. She will also be returning shortly to private practice in Washington, D.C. at Kirkland and Ellis. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Laura, I want to start with what I think is perhaps the most fascinating question here. Why law school? Why a career in the law? What got you pursuing this route? You know, that's really, that's such a funny question. So, because I, I never intended on going to law school. It was not something that I had been planning since I was a child or anything. Um, I actually studied psychology as an undergrad, and I had thought that I was going to get my PhD in psychology. Um, and I graduated in 2009. So, for those who don't remember or don't hadn't lived through it. It was not a great time economically. So I, uh, instead of making a decision to go into a PhD program, um, I tried to work for a little just to make sure that I, this is really what I wanted to do. And that ended up being the right decision to make because I was doing social work adjacent type stuff and just really realized that I wanted to do a service oriented job, but psychology was not it's just I, my personality isn't cut out for it. So I started exploring, you know, what I could be doing instead. And I got, um, someone told me about this conference at Notre Dame that uh, explored a whole bunch of bioethics issues from a wide variety of disciplines. So theology, law, um, philosophy, biology, et cetera. I had become interested in bioethics issues just because I have a disability myself and, you know, it's just, you, you, it just causes you to think, I think, a little more deeply about some of these questions than maybe other people might come across in their daily lives. So I just was interested in it, um, and I went to the conference. When I was there, I met Professor Sneed, um, Carter Sneed, who is a wonderful, um, he's a wonderful man. He's also a very good salesman, and he really, you know, he sat me down and talked with me and asked me, you know, what, what could you see yourself doing that would make you happy? What kind of things make you happy? Um, and after a long chat with him, um, he was like, I really think you should s seriously consider going to law school. So that was really the, the thing that got it going. And, um, and then, of course, once I decided to go to law school, Notre Dame was the only place I wanted to go. Now, I'm not too far removed from law school myself. So I very clearly remember that law school is hard. There's, there's a lot of reading, a lot of it. How does law school work for someone who, like yourself, can't just pick up any old horn book or treatise out of the library? What, what is different about it? How, how do you go through that uh, as, as someone in your position? Yeah, this is, it's a really good question um, because I think it, it helps people to understand maybe some of the changes that could be made to make uh, the obstacles a little less um, pervasive. So I was able to access my textbooks digitally so I could get them 
as PDF or Word files. But even that, um, it entails a lot of work on the front end. So before you can even begin your classes, you have to be in touch with the publishers and prove that you do have a disability and you require these materials. So it's just an example of how um, extra time is built into your day, pretty much, you know, regardless, but for whatever it is that you're trying to get accomplished. And then I just have a, a really amazing suite of assistive technology. I have a program on my computer that is called a screen reader. It um, takes whatever is on visually displayed on the screen and it turns it into audio. Um, it, I have a, it's a machine called a braille display and that performs a very similar function, only it takes what is on the screen and transmits it into braille so you, I can physically read it with my fingers. So I do have access to reading things and listening to things in the same way. I think the biggest hurdle is just actually getting it. Um, it's, it's getting access to the digital texts or getting access to perhaps a, a database where the database itself might not work with my, with my technology. And then, like you said, there's a lot less freedom of being able to go to the library and grab a book and or just do you know, research from books. So in that respect, I would say, for me, it took a lot more planning. I, I really always had to be very on top of my work and I had to build in a lot of lead time. So if I didn't understand a particular area of a study, you know, there was no such thing for me as waiting until a few days before the final to figure it out because if I only gave myself that much time at the end of the day, I wouldn't have enough time to get um, the actual treatises or the, the access to the information that would teach me the answers to my questions. And that's actually a great uh, segue into a question I want to ask you about a unique experience that you had at law school and that you've, you've testified very recently uh, in front of Congress about, and that's with then Professor Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your experiences with her and, and what that meant to you in law school? Absolutely. So I um, I just the technology I just described, I own personal copies of it myself. Um, but then when I went to Notre Dame, again, another incident of having a disability requiring a lot of planning, I had worked with the school to make sure that they would also purchase the same technology so that if something terrible happened and, you know, I don't know, I poured coffee all over my laptop or something, um, that I would have which, another by way, computer. Which, by the way, is a thing that I did in law school. <laughs> no, really? It is. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, professional hazard. <laughs> we drink a lot of coffee. Um, but yeah, so that, that there would be a backup. And because the thing that, that maybe people don't realize and might not have come across in the testimony is that you know, if something happens to my stuff, I can't just borrow a friend's computer or go to the library or do something like that. It's like, if my if that machine becomes malfunctioning, then that's really the only machine I have access to. So, um, so I planned. I, I worked with the school to get to make sure that they would bring they would have their own copies. But when I got to Notre Dame, um, it just so happened that you know the 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 request that there, there something had gotten lost in translation and the request had not been properly processed. And so I got to campus and I did not have the technology, which wouldn't have been such a big deal, um, except that basically immediately, I think in my second week of class, my own laptop did actually, the hard drive started to fail. So um, 
yeah, so I was really, it was like my worst case scenario that I had tried to plan to prevent. And um, it was sort of like, I just felt like, you know, all of these contingencies were just like falling down right in front of me and I really needed help. And so I, 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 I was privileged enough. Judge Barrett was randomly assigned to one of my classes my first semester. So I went to her because she, as I think a lot of folks saw last week over the course of the hearings, she is just so composed and knows everything there is to know about everything. Um, and I just thought, you know, if anyone can tell me how to short circuit this process and get it done more quickly, it's her. But when I got to her and I told her about all of the, you know, the struggles I was having, instead of just advising me on, you know, who to send an email to or how to word it more persuasively or strongly or, or something like that, she just told me that she wanted to take care of it on my behalf. And um, the the line that, you know, that it's, it's no longer your problem, it's my problem. And um, it, it really, it made just a world of difference because what some folks might not know about law school is you, it, it's almost always the case that you get one shot at your grade. Your only grade is your final exam. So if I hadn't gotten the chance to catch up and read all of, you know, readily keep pace with my peers, it is really, really probable that my first semester grades would have not been great because, you know, you only have that one exam to hang your hat on. And I really attribute Judge Barrett, the fact that she advocated for me and got things done very, very quickly. I attribute her doing that to the fact that I did end up doing well my first semester, which just, you know, set me up for a lot of different opportunities, but also gave me tons of self-confidence that I could do this and going to law school was the right choice. Yeah, Laura, you, by all accounts, not only survived law school, which I think is the goal for a lot of people, but you you thrived. Uh, you went on uh, to have an amazing array of clerkships. You clerked for Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit, Judge Tom Hardiman on the Third Circuit. And, and most recently, you became the first blind Supreme Court clerk clerking for Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about these clerkships. What did you learn? Who are these amazing jurists? Yeah, I I really think I hit the trifecta of the three. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but the three <laughs> best judges out there. Um, they're each so amazing in their own way. Um, one of the, you know, Judge Brown. So I, Judge Brown is just this fantastic woman. She's like, I think one of the last remaining Renaissance women. She can, her intellect is really uh, top notch, but she can also bake an amazing pecan pie from scratch, <laughs> you know, it's like, and everything in between. I mean, she's just brilliant at everything she does. And she's thoughtful and, and soft spoken. And um, she just taught me so much about how to choose your words carefully. Uh, I tend to be, I tend to have more of a personality where I speak quickly and maybe a little bit more quickly than I should if I just gave it a bit more thought. <laughs> and Judge Brown, she's just so, um, she has so much graciousness and she's so measured in her speech that um, I really learned from her that to be a good lawyer and just a good person in general, um, that skill of just taking a, taking a pause and, and really listening to the people that you're talking to before you formulate your views. Um, yeah, and then, you know, Judge Hardiman, he, uh, I think, has become popularly and it's 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 true like the, about him that he's um 
He's a very extroverted man. He's He writes in a very clear and concise way for his whole um, mantra is that he wants to make sure that the litigants know exactly why they lost or won, that his his opinions are short and concise and they, they don't contain any flourishes. Um, and I, I think that that itself has also been a really valuable skill in terms of becoming an attorney, just being very clear and direct. Um, and then Justice Thomas, he is just a joy. He is my greatest role model. Um, I had never planned on applying to clerk for the Supreme Court and obviously clerking for any justice would have been an immense honor. But Justice Thomas was the creme de la creme for me. And I think the day that I was actually called for an interview in some ways was the best day of my life, let, like even compared to when he actually offered me the position because I just couldn't believe I was going to get the chance to sit down and talk with him and meet him face to face. He just models for me how you can live a life where you've experienced adversity, you've experienced unfairness and character assassination and all of these things, and you still are able to live life very joyfully and lovingly toward everyone that you meet. And, you know, aside from that, obviously, it was a wonderful experience just being on the court. But I think in a very particular way, being able to learn from him those interpersonal qualities and to have him as a lifelong role model and mentor is just, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I can't imagine anything that could be better than that. So now you're on a, a temporary hiatus from private practice, if I understand that correctly. Uh, and you will soon be returning to Kirkland uh, so speaking of role models and mentors, to be working with Paul Clement. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you'll be doing, what type of law you'll be working on, and what does that look like, again, uh, for someone who who doesn't have the ability to just pull you know case books off the shelves or, or anything like that? Yeah, so I worked at Kirkland also for a, a bit of time in between the Third Circuit clerkship and the court. Um, and so I, I have, I worked for, in Paul's group, the Supreme Court and Appellate Practice group for about a year, and that's the one that I'll be returning to. So um, talk about, yeah, like you said, talk about a wonderful mentor, just watching Paul and Aaron Murphy and, and many of the other senior attorneys there, how they craft a case and, and being able to participate in a case from the very beginning when it comes in the door to the final moments when either the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals renders a judgment and seeing how they work through the issues and they get more and more refined and more and more in, impressive in their detail. It's an amazing way to begin your career as an attorney in practice. You know, I will be relying on a lot of these same technologies. Kirkland has been extremely proactive in recognizing that some of the proprietary software that lawyers use for things that are very important to the firm, like version control, document management, those types of things, many of those programs are not accessible. They prevent a lot of blind people from actually entering into practice in big law firms as opposed to smaller, you know, maybe single office uh, legal entities. So. Kirkland has been really proactive in recognizing that this is a is a is a problem for inclusion and and just representation of disabled attorneys. So they have taken big steps to working with these software companies to make that make these programs more accessible, not just for me, but you know, for anyone else who is blind and then 
many many big law firms use these same programs. So if Kirkland, you know, if Kirkland can get a solution, then these other firms can get a solution. Um, so in in some ways, I, I feel like one of the things I'm happiest about in going back to Kirkland is just being able to participate in that process and make it publicly known that blindness is not a reason that a, 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 an attorney cannot be a really working in a really fast paced competitive area of the law. And looking back, I mean, given all of your experiences, in some respects, groundbreaking experiences as being a non-sighted person going through law school, excelling in law school, what advice would you give to other non-sighted individuals thinking about a legal career? And also, what what recommendations would you make for, for law schools, for law professors, for um for legal institutions uh, about how to better embrace the reality that that we have an amazing array of, of very talented individuals like yourself who just need to be given that opportunity to excel. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the advice that I would give is to not be afraid to ask for help. Um, I think, I mean, that was the reason I told the story about Judge Barrett, but there have been so many other times when I have um, and I have reached out for assistance and then through that process gained a lifelong advocate or just deepened someone else's understanding through a relationship about what, um, what, what blind people experience. And I think, so a really wonderful example of this is I have some friends who are blind who are applying for jobs in, in the DC market, and they've just by happenstance sometimes come across other friends of mine. And because they're my friends who are, who are doing the hiring, and because they're my friends, they already know about screen readers and they already know about some of these issues, right? So it's, it's not through some program or some bureaucratic thing. It's just through relationships that you can really do make a lot of headway in terms of increasing people's understanding. But unfortunately, that, that sometimes entails, if you are blind, just allowing yourself to be a little bit vulnerable and asking for, for that help. As far as institutions go, I think disability is an area where institutions tend to be reactive rather than proactive. They don't really learn about different technologies that exist until someone comes in the door and asks for help. Um, and so I think that one thing that institutions could do or professors could do is just, you know, not that people, I, not that people have tons of free time, but I think it's not very hard, you know, given the digital age to, to do a little Googling and just have a very basic understanding. I mean, you don't have to do a deep dive, but just a basic understanding of the types of technology that people who use wheelchairs and people who are hard of hearing, people who are blind use. And so that way, if a student ever does come in the door, it's not that you necessarily have all the answers, but you can have a conversation using the same language as opposed to the student having to do a whole lot of educating up front before you can even have a productive conversation about how to solve a problem or how to get the tools that are needed to succeed. Well, speaking of conversations, I do have one final question for you. And that is if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? So, this might be a very cliche answer, 
but I actually would really like to talk to Justice Holmes um, because he wrote the this decision called Buck v. Bell um, in 1927, where he talked about why you know the constitutionality of of uh, forcibly sterilizing certain populations against their will, um, and he was he was a eugenicist, um, which was a very popular philosophy at the time. And I just think it would be very interesting to have a conversation with him about some of those ideas and what it would be like if he were confronted with actual examples that countered, you know, that very very popular philosophy of the time. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to, to have you on. And I, I'm hoping that as your career progresses, and I have no doubt that it will, uh, that we can have you back on in the future to talk more about how things are going and what you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Well, Amy, I think that it's fitting this week if we do election law related trivia. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds good to me. Okay, good. Excellent. Now, are you ready? Yes, let's do All it. All right. As any, I think, good election law trivia session should, we're going to start with Bush versus Gore. Yes, please be about hanging chads. <laughs> no. Now, <laughs> three of the current sitting Supreme Court justices worked on the Bush v. Gore case in some capacity. Uh, Which so, ones? Uh, I know this because I watched the confirmation hearings with Judge Barrett, uh, now Justice Barrett, and this... I don't remember the context of, of why this came up, actually, but this did come up. Um, so the answers to this are uh, the chief, uh, John Roberts, uh, Kavanaugh, and um, uh, well, I'm guessing the, the third now would be Justice Barrett herself, unless I'm missing another one, and there's actually four. No, but you're correct. Chief Justice Roberts helped prep Bush's legal team for their arguments before the Florida Supreme Court. Justice Kavanaugh was a member of Bush's legal team, and Justice Barrett worked on the case for one week in some minor capacity as a junior associate, but she couldn't remember what she had done. But I can tell you, having been a junior associate at a big law firm, I have a pretty good guess that she stared at thousands of ultimately meaningless documents for 14 to 16 hours a day. That seems like a good bet. I'd yeah. put my money on that too. Well, you mentioned that the context in which this arose, that is a beautiful segue into my next question. During the hearings, a particular senator floated a conspiracy theory stemming from the fact that three justices had worked on Bush versus Gore. Do you remember which senator that was and the nature of the conspiracy theory? Oh, geez. Um, so when I think of conspiracy theories during that hearing, I immediately go to... Um, uh, the the one with the dark money, uh, Senator Whitehouse, and the the crazy maps and the the red yarn, um, and this is killing me because I I cannot remember which senator this was. I do remember the context. Um, I I do remember that the argument was something to the effect of uh, a, a hypothetical Justice Barrett would have to recuse herself in any. Uh, election case I think somehow involving Donald Trump even though she worked on Bush v. Gore which had nothing to do with Donald Trump uh, but I, I think that was the logic but I, I don't remember the senator. Yes you have the nature of this sort of um, amorphous conspiracy theory fleshed out. The senator in question was Senator Maisie Hirono. Ah uh, man that would have been a good guess that probably would have been my guess. 
All right. So those, I, those were, you know, recent history. So now we're going to get into the meat of things. Uh, real, real heavy hitting Supreme Court case law stuff. So this particular case is the origin of the phrase one person, one vote and held that a state violates the Equal Protection Clause when in a statewide election, it arbitrarily affords votes in one county more power than votes in another. Um, this was uh, Sanders, uh, Gravy Sanders. Yes, exactly right. Well done. Whoop, whoop. So Gray versus Sanders was one of several cases holding in a variety of contexts that the Equal Protection Clause requires that electoral districts be apportioned according to population. This whole line of cases was shepherded by a particular chief justice. Do you know who that was? Um, I'm trying to think of the year. I lean toward it would have been before Warren's retirement in 1969. And I don't think it was too much earlier that it wouldn't have been him. Um... I'm going to go with this was the Warren court. You're absolutely right. Now I've got a fun story about this. So I was testing these trivia questions out on my wife yesterday before I, you know, popped them on you. And she didn't know the answer to that question. But then I gave her this hint. Just think equal protection clause doing something totally divorced from its text. She said, <laughs> oh, it's where a Warren. <laughs> oh, see, why don't I get those hints? <laughs> well, you I didn't because I got it right, but you know. Okay, last question. Now, this one is a hard one, uh, and it's very arcane, but but it's a, it's a neat question. So here we go. This was the very first case to cite Article One, Section Four, which, as you know, divvies up between the states and Congress the power to set the time, place, and manner of elections for senators and representatives. The court cited Article One, Section Four, among other provisions to show that the Constitution constrains states' sovereignty, thereby rebutting the argument that allowing the Supreme Court to have ultimate authority over state courts on questions of federal law was a unique infringement of state sovereignty. Um, so, my initial reaction to if we're talking about the first case to really talk about ultimate authority over state courts and infringements on state sovereignty. I lean toward Martin V. Hunter's lessee. I'm not super confident, but I lean, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to go with. I, I think it has to be that. I don't All right. Think well, well, I'm a little disappointed. Because oh. oh, no. I really thought that I had stumped you, but you got it right. Hey. <laughs> All right, bonus question. Author of Martin versus Hunter's Lessie. Um, so I... If I recall, John Marshall actually had to recuse himself from That's it. That's right. Um, because that was also a trivia question that I think I asked you at one point. Um... I, I don't know. Justice story. Story. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. I did know that. Well, well I, I got the hard question and I missed the easy answer. 
Well, you did great overall. But, you know, I, I thought I re- would really stump you this week, but well done. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. As always, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us that five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.